Great. Well, do take your seats. You already have. And we will continue on together. Good morning from me. As I mentioned before, my name is Philip and uh, one of the pastors here. Can I add my welcome to you if you're new? It's great to have you with us. And uh, if you are new, you've joined us for the penultimate talk in our series. We're in a series called Perspective, Live for the Day which is based in the book of 1 Peter. And I think Peter, I hope you agree with you've been here, here for the series, Peter's really helped us, I think, to live with a genuine sense of perspective. Because he knows what I think we all know, that if we know where we're headed, we know what we're living for, then we can live with real perspective. And if we have a long-term perspective, then we can have a really good short-term perspective for each day as well. And Peter, I think, has really helped with that. He's helped us to have a clear perspective on daily stuff, such as living with authority, or living with marriage, or living with hope, or indeed, as we heard last week, in terms of living with suffering, which I thought was a superb talk that we heard last week from Tim Keller, helped us to live with a clear perspective on the, the tough, tough issue of suffering. And today, we're in chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, in verse 1. And Peter wants to talk about a new type of, short, new type of perspective. He wants to give us a perspective on living with God's judgment. Now, straight away, the concept of God's judgment, I think, can probably raise all kinds of questions. certainly has for me this week. It can cause us all kinds of difficulties when we begin to wrestle with the idea of God's judgment. Uh, in fact, I think judgment itself is probably something most, most of us find pretty difficult. I can still recall a key day in my childhood when I was 12 years old and uh, playing in a football match. I know this is a big surprise to you, but I was pretty competitive when I was a, uh, when I was a child, and we were playing a pretty, pretty key cup semi-final, and I remember the moment when the, the forward broke through our defensive line, and I was trying to come in round the side to make a covering tackle. He was pressing in on goal, got into the penalty area, and I made what I thought was a superb last-ditch challenge to remove the ball, but I probably didn't get that much of the ball and probably a lot more of him. When you're 12 years old... Nobody gets sent off in football matches. Like when you, you know, when you play, no one gets sent off when you're 11 and 12. Do they? If you've ever played football matches, you know that. Referee came over, and to my utter horror, brandished a red card. When you're 12, getting sent off is a moment that lives in your memory. Being judged as I was has lived in my memory ever since. And to be honest with you, the referee was right. It was a horrible foul. The guy was through on goal. Red card offence. Correct judgment. But we don't like being judged. I think that's part of all of us. We don't like the idea of a judgment being made upon us. And in this passage, Peter is going to talk about difficult things, like a judgment day that is ahead. He's going to talk about the Christian belief that there's a God who holds us to account for our actions. He's going to talk even more difficultly, perhaps, about the results for those that end up rejecting God. It's really hard stuff. Really hard stuff. And for many people, it's a key reason why they end up rejecting the Christian faith. Not least because on occasions, Christians and churches over the centuries have talked about this stuff pretty aggressively and unhelpfully. So my aim this morning is to try and engage with why we find this stuff hard. I want us to see that according to Peter, selfish living leads to judgment and the gospel leads to selfless living. According to Peter, selfish living leads to judgment. The gospel leads to selfless living. So here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11, and then verses 17 and 18. And it's also on the screen behind me. Peter says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's get down to verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I want to look at four things this morning. The first is this, that there is a need for judgment. I want to suggest firstly that there is a need for judgment. But this is hard stuff, isn't it? This is hard stuff. I think Ricky Gervais probably sums up quite nicely how many people in Kingston would feel about this issue of judgment. Ricky Gervais says, says this, it's just really strange that anyone who believes that an all-powerful, all-knowing power responsible for everything that happens would also want to judge and punish people for just being who they are. And I think he's probably summarising pretty accurately how most people in Kingston would feel about the idea of a God who judges. So we don't like the idea, I don't think, of a judge. On the other hand, I would suggest we don't really want to live without a judge or a judgment. Think about it long enough. I think we all probably know certain people that seem to get away, in simple terms, with doing wrong things. If you've ever been robbed or burgled and no one's been charged or prosecuted for it, you instinctively know that they shouldn't escape a judgment. There's a, a famous playwright called Arthur Miller you've probably heard of, and, and he wrote a brilliant play called After the Fall. And there's a, the main character in the play is called Quinton. And Quinton says a quote I'm going to read out to you in a second. It's a little bit of a complex quote, but I think it's really helpful just to explore this idea of if we really think about it, we don't actually want there to not be a judge. We do need judgment. So Quinton, the character in the play, he says this, for years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, or smart, and then what a good lover. And then later on, you have to prove what a good father. And finally, you try to prove how wise you are, or powerful, or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now, in all of my arguing, that there was a presumption. That I was somehow moving on an upward path towards some elevation that I would be justified or, or maybe condemned for what I'd done, but there'd be a verdict at some point anyway. And he goes on to say, I think now that my personal disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained, I realised, was the endless argument with oneself, 
this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. What does he mean? So Quinton, I guess, is a mouthpiece for Arthur Miller, really, and both Quinton and Arthur Miller, I guess, would be a typical 20th century secular person. Both, I think, would say, uh, we've rejected the idea of God, of a traditional idea of heaven or hell or punishment or reward, and, and they would feel liberated as a result. That's kind of who Quinton is and who Arthur Miller is. Until, he says, one day I looked up and I realized there was no one on the bench referring to a, a judge's bench. Now he knows what I think we all know, that of course it's, we all know it's better to be unselfish than selfish. It's not right to trample on weaker groups and exploit them. It's better to uh, keep your promises than stab someone in the back. He knows that we do believe it's better when we tell each other what's right and wrong. Then he suddenly realizes that if there's no one on the bench of the universe, then who decides ultimately what is right or wrong? There's no way that you can say that one, one action is more meaningful than the other. Who's to say? How is there any basis for saying this is wrong and this is right if the bench is empty? So what I'm suggesting is that we, probably like Ricky Gervais, don't like the idea of a God who judges. But I think that we, probably like Quinton, don't want to live without a judge. So we need a judgment. We need a judgment day. But if we need it, and so, so, so therefore, if we need a judgment day for other people, surely, logically, we therefore need a judgment day for ourselves, just logically. But why is that? Let's go further in terms of our judgment. Why is there need for God to bring people to a judgment? Well, Peter identifies a list of reasons in verse 3, which I guess is probably best summed up with the word debauchery, as reasons as to why people will be brought to account by God. And the inference clearly being it won't go well for them when they are. Now, at this point, we need to understand what Peter is not saying. He's not saying, do not go to parties where there is drinking. He's not saying, sex and alcohol are bad, and if you do those things, God will smite you in punishment. It's not what he's saying. He knows, I think, that those things that he lists are symptoms. They're symptoms of the human condition. They're symptoms of the selfishness that is at work in the human condition. They're all activities, if I can use that word, that are to do with serving self. So just being blunt with you, that's why someone would go to an orgy, to have their needs met, to, I guess, essentially use others in order to feel better about self. It's a pretty extreme example. I guess Peter could easily have used more subtle examples like, like greed. Ultimately, he's talking, I think, about the selfishness that's in the human condition that has always been there. So, having been a, a teacher for a number of years, my observation was that children, on the one hand, are capable of remarkable selflessness, but that maybe selfishness seems to come a bit more naturally. And those of you who are parents, you might, might agree with that. You can probably see that in your own children. Probably, if we're honest, probably see it in ourselves. Selfishness probably comes a bit more naturally than selflessness. And I can remember, at, at, as a teacher, being at school in the, in the line for the, for the lunch queue. And we, were, we had some quite good lunches at the school I taught. I was always pretty keen to get a decent lunch. And I could see that on the dessert part of the, uh, of the uh, lunch bar was a massive chocolate gateau. It looked amazing. So I had my eye on that. There's quite a few kids in front of me. And of course, they had the same idea. They're going to have the same chocolate gateau as well. So as we were queuing along, the queue's moving along, and bit by bit, each child, sure enough, has a bit of chocolate gateau. It's moving down more and more and more. And I get to almost up to the lunch counter. There's one more boy in front of me, and there's one 
really large piece of chocolate gatto, like pretty much two pieces in one. And basically, he looked at the gatto, looked at me, took the whole thing, moved off. <laughs> and you know what? If I'd have been in front of him, I'd have taken the whole thing and moved off as well. Because I think selfishness probably comes a bit more naturally than selflessness does. And Peter's observation is that in different ways, that's the case for all people. We're all born with selfishness in us. And in verse 3, he's not saying, these are the awful things that people who aren't Christians do. And we're Christians because we don't do these things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying all of us, whether now or in the past, have acted selfishly. That's the point, I think, that he wants to make. And it strikes me that so many acts of humans causing suffering to one another ultimately stem from selfishness. A sense of, I want what meets my desires, what will allow me to flourish. So maybe we've all seen a little moment when a little child pushes another one over to get the toy. Or a moment of gossip about a colleague at work. Or just choosing to buy a product that I know is manufactured in unacceptable conditions. Or more extremely, perhaps, to quote Peter, an act of debauchery that, that leaves somebody else feeling used and broken. All of those examples, whether small or more extreme, what I think lies beneath all of them is a heart that says, I do this because it benefits me. It makes me feel better about self. It gives me what I want. And my suggestion is that I think we want those things to be held to account. We don't want those things to pass by without being judged. Let me give you another example which stems from a litany of examples of my woes on the road. And uh, <laughs> I, was cycling, I was driving on Kingston the other day, I think it was before Christmas in fact, and it was dark. And I was driving, driving along and I suddenly realised there was a cyclist in front of me. I hadn't really seen him because he wasn't, hadn't had any lights on. Neither was he wearing a helmet. And also, just to kind of cap it off, he had a big pair of headphones on his head as well, just like cycling along. And in that moment, I made a clear judgment. I was like, you're just, you're just kind of being a bit selfish. You could cause all kinds of harm from what you're doing. You could, never mind yourself, what kind of accident could you cause by the way in which you're cycling? His selfishness could have caused harm, and I wanted it judged. A few weeks later, I was in our flat, running a bit late, needed to get into Kingston, was going to cycle, couldn't find my helmet. Running a bit late probably going to be okay, get the bike out, off we go into Kingston. Cycling along with no helmet, then my phone goes in my pocket. I think, well, I probably need to answer that, could be something quite urgent. Answer my phone while cycling along with no helmet. In that moment, I thought, how is it that I'm able to excuse pretty much the same act on my own behalf when I judge it in somebody else? In the other guy, his selfishness could have caused harm, and I wanted it judged. And in my instance, my selfishness could have caused harm, and I didn't want it judged at all. I found it acceptable. I made an excuse for it. I think we all do that in different ways. It's amazing what will justify in ourselves that we find unacceptable in others. The philosopher Francis Schaeffer gives the example of how if we were all born, imagine you were born with a little microphone like this, and he says the microphone is perfectly wired, so it only picks up all the moral judgments you make in life. It picks up every time you say, that's wrong, someone shouldn't do that, they shouldn't lie, they shouldn't cheat. He says it also picks up all the times when you do the things that you've deemed to be unacceptable. His point being is that if we're honest, over the course of our life, we don't even live up to our own moral judgments, let alone the standards of God. Why? Because I think selfishness dictates that we apply a different standard to ourselves, just like I did on my bike. 
We want selfishness and all it causes judged. We just don't want ours judged. And so logically, if we want some selfishness judged, then surely our selfishness does have to be judged. Just logically speaking, if you want one, you need the whole thing. And Peter tells us, well, in one way it is. He says it is, it will be judged, both yours and mine. Now at this point, I need to do what I call a little theological pit stop. Okay, so just mentally, we just need to kind of pull over and just do a quick kind of theological explanation because Peter says a couple of confusing things that I want to just hopefully clear up for us in verse 6 and verse 17. Then we'll get, like, get back on the road towards judgment or something like that. Anyway, verse 6, Peter says, This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Then in verse 17, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? What does he mean there? Talking about people who have been judged before and after death and so on, and Christians being judged. What does he mean? What he's saying is this. Ever since sin, selfishness, came into the world through Adam and Eve, God's judgment has been on all mankind as a result. The judgment being death. So everyone has died. Every human has died. Every Christian has and will die. Suffering is still around, as we heard last week. In that sense, the judgment of God is in place, what Peter's saying. That's why in verse 6, he says the gospel was preached to people who became Christians but have since died. That's what he means. And in verse 17, he repeats that that judgment, death, is still in place for the house of God, by which he means the church, because suffering and death comes to us all. But, he's indicating, there's a different judgment to come. There's a day to come. One that is unlikely to go well for anyone who has not accepted the gospel. That's the inference of what he's saying. Why? As Francis Schaeffer would say, or as my example of the cyclist would say, if God judged us merely on the moral code we apply to everyone else, we wouldn't pass. Let alone to his perfect standards. And so it's this future day, this day ahead that I want to look at. That's what I'm focusing on. So, what have we said so far? We've said we need judgment more broadly. Secondly, therefore, we personally need a judgment. And so thirdly, I guess, logically speaking, we need a judge. So you go back to my story of the football match. When I committed this heinous foul and this poor guy was brought down and robbed of a goal-scoring opportunity in the cup semi-final... The other team were really glad that the referee blew his whistle, came over, sent me off and awarded the penalty. I wasn't very glad, but the other team were glad that a judge appeared. Without the authority figure in that game, the game would have been ruined. The injustice wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been uh, punished or, or met with anything. They were glad when a judge figure arrived. And Peter says that he knows who the judge figure is. He calls him him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Says that in verse 5. And we know who Peter means because if we just skim back in the Bible to Acts chapter 10, so the book of Acts tells the story of the early church's beginning and Peter was alive in those times as well. In Acts 10, we hear Peter himself talking to a Roman soldier, someone that wasn't a follower of Christ at the time, talking to him about this very issue of judgment. And in Acts 10, Peter says to this Roman soldier, Jesus told us to preach to you and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. That's where Peter gets the phrase from. He used it in Acts 10. He uses it again in his letter in 1 Peter. 
Because Peter knows, like the Bible makes clear, that God the Father has appointed Jesus to be the judge on this day to come. And Jesus was pretty clear about that while he was on earth. He effectively said, I guess I'm coining Arthur Miller's phrase or Quinton's phrase, Jesus effectively says, the bench isn't empty. There is a judge and it's me. He says that repeatedly. He says uh, things like, I'm the only way to the Father, things like that. And in John's account of Jesus' life in chapter 12, John describes the way Jesus goes about talking about this. He says he cried out, cried out about judgment. To which we can kind of say, well, okay, Jesus cries out about judgment, so he kind of shouts about it, he's angry, he's harsh. That sounds like a lot of what I've heard about judgment and God and the Christian God. Jesus crying out about things. So what does, that, what does it mean? Last point, what's, what's Jesus the judge like and why do we need him? Is he just an angry, vengeful figure of God who goes around trying to smite people, crying out? The need for Jesus. I think this, this phrase I discovered this week is a really fascinating phrase because in the Greek in which the text was originally written, every time this phrase cried out is used, it has a very consistent combined meaning. It kind of means two things at once all the time when it's used. On the one hand, it does kind of mean shouting, cried out. In that sense, Jesus is warning. He says things over and over again like, I'm the only way to the Father. You reject me, you reject the Father. Judgment is coming. He does warn repeatedly. On the other hand, the phrase also means he cried. It has real overtones of anguish and grief. It means he weeps as well as warns. Jesus is a judge who weeps and warns. He knows the eternal significance of that judgment to come. And why why do I take this seriously? (laughs) Why do many of us take this seriously? Because a lot of things that Jesus says that I really wish he hadn't said. Seriously, a lot. And this is probably one of them. So why am I taking it seriously? Why am I encouraging us to take it seriously? His teaching about judgment and judgment day. I guess pretty simply, it's because I look at the evidence, try and be as objective as possible, and look at the evidence for this claim that he came back to life again. I look at the evidence, and I genuinely believe that the best explanation for what happened was that he really did come back to life again. And if he did that, he proved that he really was the son of God. And if he did that, he therefore proved all of the things that he claimed to be true before he died and rose again. All of his claims are vindicated if he really did rise again. And that must include the promise that he made that he would return one day to judge the living and the dead. I take his warning seriously. I also take his weeping seriously. Because he cried out on the cross. This is not only a warning judge. Verse 1, Peter says, Christ suffered in the flesh. This is a judge who wept, who wept on the cross, who cried out on the cross. You see, Jesus is the perfect judge. He knew we couldn't face his perfect standards. And if I can combine the gospel with Arthur Miller's play, The gospel is this, is the story of the judge who came down from the bench. He comes down to stand in the place of the accused. 
He's not only a sympathetic judge who weeps, he's an extraordinary judge who gets off the bench and comes and stands in the place of those who are judged. The judge doesn't excuse, this judge doesn't excuse or turn a blind eye to human selfishness and all of its repercussions. And we don't want him to. We don't want a judge who ignores and turns a blind eye to the devastating impact of human suffering. He doesn't ignore it. He comes down from the bench and endures it himself. He takes the judgment upon himself. He's both the judge and the one who is judged. Do you want to know what the gospel is this morning? The gospel is this, a selfless judge judged for our selflessness. Sorry, a selfless judge judged for our selfishness. Jesus Christ demonstrated utter selflessness that he might take the judgment for our selfishness. It's the gospel. And if you believe, many of us do, if you believe in those accomplishments of Jesus, you still die. Probably will suffer on the way, as we heard last week. But your future judgment, the one that lies ahead, is taken. Your and my selfishness is dealt with. It's the only way that you can have the true and perfect judgment that I think we need, and it's the only way that you can pass it in him. And what's more, because Jesus' accomplishments through faith become our accomplishments, because we therefore receive his innocence and his vindication, because through faith you become united to him, then not even your physical death can hold you. Why? Because the resurrection proves it didn't hold him. And faith unites you to all that he accomplished and all that he achieved and all indeed that he promises to do. And faith unites you to him, to the promise that he made, that he would complete what he started. That when he came to earth and began to renew it with the perfection of heaven, he promised that he would complete what he started then. And faith in his accomplishments means you get united to that future accomplishment when he will return in judgment on that day. And all of those that believe in him, that united to him, get to live with him in perfection on this earth forever. He's going to bring heaven to earth. Imagine a renewed earth without a single hint of the human selfishness that has brought such hurt and suffering over the centuries. A renewed earth where all that is best or most selfless about humanity and creation will exist forever. Just begin to dream for a moment. Can you imagine an earth where, for example, everyone uses their gifts and their skills and their talents selflessly for everyone else's good and the glory of God forever? That's what he's going to achieve Imagine a world where people go to work, which they will do in the new creation, and they go to work every day in order to extend love and peace and compassion and grace for the good of everybody else every single day. A world where no one ever, ever acts selfishly and no one ever, ever gets hurt as a result. A world where, ironically, not one tear of grief is ever shed, ever. Because human selfishness has been dealt with and resolved forever. That's the world that all of those that are united with Jesus, that have passed the judgment of Jesus because of Jesus, will enjoy forever. A place where selflessness will reign and result in flourishing and peace and beauty and wonder and creativity and joy forever. 
and a place where the ultimate selfless one himself, Jesus Christ, reigns in majesty and in love and in peace and in joy and in beauty forever. And can you imagine what it's like not to be there? to uh, arrive at judgment day and try and pass the judgment of Jesus ourselves. To stand before him and, and acknowledge that I, I didn't even live up to my own moral judgments, let alone the perfect ones that you make. And to face his punishment, his judgment. What's that going to be like? That's why Jesus wept as he warned. Because he knows what it'll be like. If you try and pass judgment day any other way than through me, he said, through my suffering, through my taking of your judgment, if judgment remains outstanding upon you on that day, how can you bring your selfishness into my perfect earth of beauty and creativity and love and peace and joy? You won't have it. Jesus warned, you reject me now and you end up rejecting me forever and being separated from me forever. And the Bible makes it clear that that will be awful. Horrendous. Hell is agonizing and forever. And Jesus loved people so much. And that's why he wept and he warned them. That's why Peter says, maybe with tears in his eyes, rhetorically, in verse 17, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's why in Peter's second letter, to Peter, he says, on that day of judgment, the ungodly will be destroyed. By which he means all of those that haven't allowed Jesus to pay for their ungodliness, their selfishness, will pay for it for themselves and be punished by him forever. Let me just pause and say a couple of things. I don't like preaching this stuff. <laughs> don't like preparing to preach this stuff. Done my own fair share of weeping this week. But I, I do so because I, I'm fully persuaded that Jesus really did come back to life again. And he is God. And therefore, I, I won't dismiss what he taught so repeatedly and regularly and clearly. And what Peter affirms here and the rest of the Bible does. Second thing I want to say is this isn't just a theory to us. It's not just theology. I'm talking about people. People that we love friends that we love. Family that we love. I want to say, if you were here this morning and you would say you're kind of more at the beginning of exploring the gospel, we're all exploring the gospel, but you're at the beginning of that perhaps and you wouldn't say you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you know how much we love you being here. And I also hope you know how much we love you. And because we love you, we warn you. We love you enough to warn you. And so what have I said so far? I've said, number one, that we need a judgment. I've proposed to you that we therefore personally need a judgment. And therefore, I think thirdly, we need a judge to do that judging. 
And fourthly, we need Jesus. How do you live? What do you do with this? How do you live in the light of this? I think Peter's quite clear as to how we should, as Christians, live in the light of Judgment Day. In verse 7, referring to Judgment Day, he says, the end of all things is near. Now, I know that this, is a, this week of all weeks is pretty dangerous to talk about living because of your future judgment. I'm thinking about the atrocity in Nice. I'm thinking about that because that is an example, I think, of someone doing a horrendous act now, believing that he would receive his reward on Judgment Day. So how does the Bible say that Christians should behave? Be violent? Be a crazy person and start yelling about judgment and hell and making placards? Remarkable how he attaches two thoughts in verse 7. He says the end of all things is at hand. And what's his immediate application? Verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded. A perspective set on judgment day produces the exact opposite of craziness and violence. I can also say this, that you can know, even if you've been a victim of injustice yourself, a right perspective on judgment day should help you so much. If you've been a a victim of personal injustice, a right perspective on judgment day allows you to say, I don't have to be bitter or vengeful or let this define me. That injustice done to me has not gone unpaid for, hasn't gone undealt with. A right perspective on the gospel and on judgment day allows you to say that injustice that hurt me so much, it was paid for by Jesus on the cross and it will be put right when he returns again. Well, it's a response to judgment day more, therefore, as Christians to kind of keep our heads down and just sort of wait for him to return. Just bunker down, hunker down, stick with Christians and, and wait for Jesus to come back. Is that the response? Because that's been the response of some churches over the centuries. Don't think so. Look at verse 8, Peter's application. Love others earnestly. That's his immediate application to having this last day in mind. Be sober-minded, be self-controlled, love others earnestly, be hospitable, serve people, use your gifts for other people's blessing and God's glory. In short, a Christian living with perspective in light of judgment day will live selflessly. That's what I started off by saying. Selfish living leads to judgment. The gospel leads to selfless living. To put it a different way, we should live like the people that we will be in this new creation. Live like your future self. Live like the person that you're going to be. When Jesus brings heaven and earth together, He's gonna, he wants us, human beings, to be the stewards of that new creation. Just how it was always intended to be. To look after it, to rule it, to govern it, to do good through it. Let's begin our stewardship now. Christians are to be, if you like, agents of the new creation. Now, in the present. Living selflessly. As Peter says himself, stewards of God's varied grace now, stewarding his grace, stewarding his creation, stewarding the gifts and the skills and the talents and the passions that he's given us so that people might start to glimpse what the new creation will be like. 
The response of, of a Christian with a right perspective on Judgment Day could never be being judgmental, harsh, angry, violent, placard-wielding and waving. The gospel leads to selfless living when your perspective is right and true. Jamie, band, can you come and join me? Want to help us to respond? There are so many things that I wanted to say to try and help us to respond, and I, I try and bring something concise to you. Because if you're anything like me, your mind might be just pinging around with questions or objections. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's what your exploration of the gospel has led you to. If you're a follower of, the Jesus, of Jesus, what can you do this week to selflessly bring in something of the new creation into the here and now? If you write down or take a mental note of nothing else but that this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, what can I do this week to selflessly bring in something of the beauty of heaven that's going to one day renew this earth this week? What can I do? How can you use your gifts that you have for a purpose, selflessly to serve others, to give them a glimpse of the beauty and the peace of the new creation. Just a little story, it's just a silly little story. But just this week, it, uh, I was going up in the lift to our flat. We live in a, in a block of flats where our lift is not always in great state. And true to form, the lift had just loads of beer spilt in it and beer cans and stuff, which is a bit horrible. I was like, oh, pretty selfish, someone to do that. And I thought, well, I'm not going to clear it up. My own selfishness kicked in straight away. And I came back the following day, and somebody, selflessly, had put down loads of newspaper onto the lift to kind of mop up the beer. And in that moment, I thought, do you know what? Part of my calling, if I have a right perspective on that day ahead and on the gospel, I get to be like Jesus because I'm united to him and to begin to bring something of the new creation to here and the now. And when Jesus returns to make this whole earth perfect, there's going to be no litter, <laughs> rubbish. People aren't going to be just misusing alcohol and making life difficult. There won't be any of that. So my job is to bring a little bit of that in now. So not because I'm a hero or because I wanted to please God, but because I've got, I'm getting a perspective on what will be. I just chose to get my hands dirty and scoop up the newspaper and clear up the lift. But only because this week I began to get a perspective on, on what's to come. And on the one hand, it's made me weep. On the other hand, it's made me more joyful than I've been for a while. And the, the calling of a Christian is not to try hard and do good stuff. The calling of a Christian is to be united to the selfless one himself, both now and forever, and to be changed, to be more like him, that others might see him and enjoy him forever. So it might just be like me. You just took some newspaper and cleared up some beer. Real simple stuff. What does selfless living look like for you this week? And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can I urge you to heed the warning of Jesus? Come on, be honest now. None of us live up to even our own moral standards and judgments, let alone the perfect judgments of the one who put this world in place. Come to him who weeps as he warns. Come to the selfless judge 
the one who stepped down from the bench and took your judgment for you on your behalf. Come to him. So what do we do as we sing this song? All of us, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, come to the selfless one, the servant judge, or as this song says, the servant king. Come to him for the first time and know the peace and the joy of your future judgment being taken. Come to him for the thousandth time, maybe in repentance for selfishness, and maybe in delight and awe and wonder that he might choose you to bring in bits of his perfect new selfless creation now, today and tomorrow. Come to him, the selfless one, the selfless king in this song.